Welcome to Backseat Directing, where we talk about movies, TV shows, comics, and more. Where are your hosts, Andrew and Aaron? We put out new episodes every Monday and Thursday. And today we're doing a review on Ant Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Three, two, one, action! So, Aaron and myself, we just went to a theater together. Another one of our quick turnaround uh, movie podcast experiences. We just came fresh from the theater. We watched Ant-Man and the Wasp 3, or Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Um, and we drove right back here, and now we can discuss our thoughts on it. Do you think it's Ant-Man and the Wasp 3, or is it Ant-Man and the Wasp 2? I still consider it 3. I mean, she's in the first one prominently featured. I think that Mar Marvel kind of got wise to the fact that and ignoring her name in the title was a little bit of a mistake. They're, they're, even in comics, the fate and stories of these two characters are very intertwined. Right. All right. First thoughts on the movie. What would you think? Um, I would say that I liked it more than I expected. Because I generally try to stay away from ratings beforehand. But I yes. was Same. hard to avoid it waiting till Sunday. So I'd heard that there was poor reception for the movie. Um, so like, you know, subconsciously my expectations kind of went down. I didn't think it was going to be that good. Sometimes it's a good thing because then the movie is easier to enjoy. Um, I'll have some critiques for it. We'll go over in due time, but I think overall I'd rate it right now. Well, well, uh, before you say rating, we have our rating system, so we can do a live oh, rating system right now. Okay. <laughs> All right. You so ready? I'm ready if you're ready. All right. Andrew, for the story, what would you give this? Uh, for the story... Seven and a half. Story seven and a half. That's yeah, let me make sure I'm using, I'll use my calculator so you can do your rating That's also. What would you rate it for the story? I would give it like a five and a half. Okay. Okay. Our next category is acting. What do you give that? That's out of ten. Um, six. A six? Yeah. I'll give it a five and a half. It, we'll get into it more, but... We talked about it on the car ride back home. It felt like they were just on a green screen stage the whole time, right? And I feel like it's hard to give an acting there performance were some there. Time. And I think sometimes you can kind of see that a little bit. I can I absolutely agree with what you're saying. There's some times where I could feel them like reacting to things that weren't there. Namely, the one that comes to mind is when Cassie, like, spoilers for the movie, by the way. I haven't spoiled the movie yet. I'm about to make a, something that could be considered a spoiler. So we are going to spoil this whole movie in the episode. If you haven't seen it yet, go watch it. But there's a moment when Scott comes in really large as giant man and his steps are rumbling the ground. And I was not really buying Cassie's portrayal that the ground was shaking. Definitely seemed mm -hmm. like a soundstage. But what's our next category? The next category we have is cinematography. Again, out of 10. I'm going to go seven. Seven? Yeah. I will say seven as well. It was and really beautiful, the use of colors, and they use some creative camera techniques I like, like upside down shots and things like yeah, that. Yeah, even though it was on a green screen and all that stuff, and they didn't really shoot that much practically, it looked really good. You know, and like we said, sometimes you can tell that that was going on, but like, yeah, the whole movie is shot like that. Yeah. You know, like it's, we know that that's happening, so it's hard not to notice it. But if I was, 12, 13, and I didn't really know how movies were made. I would have thought it looked amazing, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, I have some complaints with like the visual defect, uh, visual effects department in certain scenes, but 
like when they're falling through the air and he turns giant and catches Cassie to save her, they fall to the ground. I thought that looked really visually great, like the way it was shot. Uh, the score, Andrew, out of 10. Um, I maybe noticed it at one moment. I'm going to say four and a half. Four and a half. I feel like it was a very kind of average Marvel score, you know, like I don't think it like stuck out at all, but it wasn't bad. It didn't take away from the movie at all for me. I'll give it a uh, six. The next category we have set design and character design. And uh, this is out of five. It's tough because I think a lot of stuff looked really great, but I also just miss, I can't rate it too high because I missed that practical component. Um, so because of visual stunning, like all the different creativity with the characters, I will give it a seven. It's out of five. Oh, I'm sorry. Then I guess that equates to what, a three and a half? Okay. Three and a half. I think I'll go with a... Oh, it's out of five. I guess a three and a half is justified. It's over half. Yeah. Uh, rewatchability. Hmm. This is a big one for me. I really value this a lot. Uh, this is out of five in our weighted scale here. Um, I will give this a two. I was also thinking a two. Okay. So there we have it. Uh, got your calculator? Yep. You want me to add it all up for you? What do I need to divide by? Um, I have well, we total. have 10, 50. 30 out of 50. Okay, so um, I rated it a 61 out of 100. So right. 6.1. 6 6.1. And for me, got my numbers? No. Do I have your numbers? No. <laughs> I only have a calculator over here. I was going to read them to you. <laughs> well, now you have to talk while I uh, add something. <laughs> um, I... And I wasn't expecting to rate it as low as a 6.1, which is why the rating scale is good and holds us accountable. I was rating it more as a 7 in my mind. Um, but I suppose a 60% is pretty fair for this for this movie. I mean, I feel Marvel's kind of on a downward trend. And overall, I was expecting to rate it as a 7 because I thought I enjoyed this movie more than some of the other recent projects. Yeah, so the just the movie watcher in you liked it a lot. But then the movie critic, where you like kind of break down the aspects of the movie, maybe didn't give it as high of a rating. But I feel like a six point one isn't bad. Yeah, it's not terrible. You know, um, mine came out to a five point nine, which is probably right where I would say that it was, even without doing scale, around a six, six and a half. So slightly lower than what I was thinking, but not as big of a gap as yours, maybe. I thought the highs of the movie hit really hard. That I thought the it was highs a fun movie. Right? It was fun. Let's delve into um, some of our background information before we go into the plot. Okay, go ahead. Are we starting off with cast and crew? Yes. Okay, so the director of this movie is named Peyton Reed. Uh, then the cinematographer, cinematographer is Bill Pope. Here, before we go into this, I'm gonna cut it here. And I wanna go back and go over the the ratings from IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and then the budget. That's what I was trying to tee you up for. Oh, <laughs> uh, well you said... Uh, I said, yeah, we'll talk about behind the scenes before we talk about the plot. Yeah, that's not... I thought you meant like um, source code. No. <laughs> no, sorry. That's why I didn't pick it up. <laughs> um, all right, so going from there. Ready? 
So IMDb had this pretty close to what we have it at. It had a 6.6 .6 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes for the critics had this pretty low. And I saw this before, like you were saying, you try to stay away from reviews and whatnot before you go and watch it. But this is the one that I saw, it was 47%. And the audience score though is the opposite, it's 84%. Um, which, I think more people like this movie than don't. We kind of fall right in the middle of that with our actual ratings. Yeah. Um, the budget for this movie, I couldn't find like a concrete number, but the, from the sites that I found, it's like anywhere from 130 to 195 million. Sounds about right. And then for the box office, um, I don't know how accurate this is since it's the, the first weekend coming out. Some sources have like different numbers, but IMDb as of Sunday at three o'clock has it at $357.3 million for an opening weekend. And then what we found on the Hollywood Reporter says that the opening weekend totaled to 238.3 million. That article was released, I think around 7.30 this morning. So maybe IMDb is updated, but just so the audience has all the information we have, it's a little bit hard to tell in this kind of time frame where it's still the opening weekend. Numbers are coming in from all over the world for results. Either way, it sounds like a pretty good opening weekend. Yeah, absolutely. That's it's a, it's a solid amount of money going towards your box office draft here. It's a four-day opening. Yeah, I'm so excited. Aaron's referencing episode 50, our box office draft. We picked movies to see which one was gonna, which we're gonna, which team of five would gross the most overall throughout the year. The first movie of that box office draft to come out so far is Ant Man. So it's it's crushing it for me for yep. so far. I hope it continues to surge past <laughs> expectations, huh? All right, uh, Andrew, who's in this movie? Who made this movie? Who is responsible for putting this all together? All right, so now we're gonna go into our segment where we talk about who's in front of and behind the camera. Behind the camera, we have the director, Peyton Reed, the cinematographer, Bill Pope, excuse me, almost sneezed, and the music by Christoph Beck. Um, we, we already talked about how we felt these people performed um, cinematography and music, but the directing um, in this movie, I, I didn't feel like it was the strongest because there were instances where I feel like the film was a little bit back and forth all over the place. I, I don't know if you felt the same. Um, I felt like there were some continuity errors, even with the editing. I noticed there's a part at the end where um, it, the shot's cutting back and forth. At some instances, Scott seems to have blood running down his chin, and then some of the shots it disappears, and later on it's just gone. So I, I just felt like that is reminiscent of like the movie as a whole where we're kind of jumping around to different perspectives because you've got you've got scott and cassie over here on one storyline you've got hope and her parents on another storyline and of course that can be done in lots of movies but it's there were times in the movies where i found myself wondering how one character got to another area um what i, I found myself wondering what size they were you know were they getting smaller were they getting bigger um were they just moving really fast towards the camera because of the nature of changing size in this movie you have to be clear with the audience as to what is happening especially in the quantum realm where things are even more confusing in terms of scale i just recently was watching the aviator where uh leonardo DiCaprio is playing howard hughes and howard hughes the character is making a movie about planes and he wants to show how fast the planes are going and he gets the footage back and he says we need something behind the planes for reference so the audience can tell how fast the planes are moving. In just a plain blue sky, you can't see. So this is what this movie needs is a reference for the size. There's a shot that's right up, like a, a middle to close shot up on, uh, 
on Scott and Cassie at one point where they're hugging and he's like, it feels like I'm hugging Godzilla, you're so big. Clearly they're just filming them as regular sized people, but in that shot, there's nothing behind them for scale. So I was confused. I was like, are they big right now? Are they regular size? Like, they must be big because that's what they're saying. Technically they're the smallest they've ever been. Because they're in the quantum realm. So yeah, but it, <laughs> that's the point is it's all relative. So yeah, they need to show us what it's relative to. Right, no, that's... Did you feel that confusion at all in the movie? Maybe a little bit, yeah. Subconsciously, probably. Like when they were going into that area of the um, the po- the possibility storm, I was like, is he moving into something or is he shrinking? I feel like it yeah. wasn't super clear. Yeah, it looked like he was continuously getting smaller. I thought smaller he was shrinking. As he was going through. And then Kang appeared down there, though. So why didn't Kang just grab that stuff? Did he appear down there? Yeah, because that's where he. Uh, Confronts them. He, that's what, remember he takes. Well, that's once they got the thing all small. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right? It's weird because they yeah. didn't change size. That thing changed size. Right. They shrunk that down. So that's that's so, the point. Is it's confusing in the right. in the writing, in the plot, in the filming. So, I mean, hey, maybe I'm just stupid, but I feel like it could have been more clear. I mean, um, you are, but that doesn't mean they can't explain <laughs> this stuff in movies. They need to they need to build the movies to stupid people in the audience like me. <laughs> I, I I genuinely I wasn't super confused, but I feel like it it did need to be clearer in some instances. Like I leaned over to Sierra at the part where my my fiance, because I was sitting next to her when they were that part where I was confused. I was like, are they big right now? And she was also confused, so I wasn't alone. <laughs> she was like, well, they must be. <laughs> but yeah, I just I think that's kind of an area where the directing and editing are mostly in charge is is conveying that to the audience. Yeah, you know, it's it's going to be cinematography as well. It's they're all shared arts sure. but um I, that's where i kind of felt at a loss for those things so um moving on to the cast we obviously have the man paul rudd returning as scott lang uh we have baskin robbins the corporate entity portraying themselves uh evangeline lily as hope van dyne michael douglas as hank pym michelle pfeiffer as janet van dyne jonathan majors as kang the conqueror Catherine newton as cassie lang bill murray as lord kryler William Jackson Harper as Quaz, I think I'm saying that correctly, and Corey Stoll as Modoc. Um, did you catch the part where Modoc's like, Cassie, I didn't recognize you. Isn't oh, yeah, because she's so much, so much older? Yeah, but isn't it also funny because this is the third actor to play? Oh, yeah, that is her. funny. That's, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, no wonder you didn't recognize her. <laughs> no one did. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was just like a funny little... Might even be the fourth actor to portray her because there was... Unless it was the same actress from Ant-Man 1 to Ant-Man 2. The little girl. Because then she's... As far as I know, there's only... Then she's older in uh, Endgame. And now it's a different actress. Yeah. Which I thought she did a great job. I've heard a lot of audiences complaining about her. Really? Saying what? Yeah. Do you know what they were saying? Well, oh, you said saying what? Sierra, Sierra just heard that a lot of people were disappointed with uh, changing the actress. I guess people were really excited about the original actress playing Cassie Lang. So I feel like it kind is of, kind of a bummer, you know? It's got to be a bummer for that actress. Right, definitely. And, like, I didn't have any problem with her in Endgame. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm sure they just did it to get a more well-known actor or actress in there. Seems like it. I think, role, yeah, that actress you know? has, has been in... Has more credits, it right? Seems, or more prominent ones. More attraction to bring in more money. It's a money's game. <laughs> it's Disney. Yep. All right. So, what do you think? Who's your favorite character? What do you like about the plot? Let's get into the nitty gritty of this movie. Yeah, let's kind of dive into the plot a little bit. So, uh, start off. We are with Scott Lang, Lang and uh, we're in Earth, and 
pretty quickly, we discover that Cassie and Dr. Hank have been researching the quantum realm and they were doing so behind Scott's back. So he didn't really know that they were like doing science, ant science. <laughs> science, <laughs> ant science. <laughs> and they basically just made this technology to where they can hopefully map out the quantum realm. It goes wrong, it sucks them all in. And that happened pretty quick, which I was actually happy that we like kind of got the story moving right away. Yeah, I thought the same thing. We didn't spend 40 minutes on Earth just kind of dancing around the fact that they're going to go to the quantum mania, you know, or a quantum realm. Um, Once they got in there, the mom, Janet, she had a lot of secrets. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, of secrets kind of in that a way she was that, holding. Yeah, kind of in a way that didn't make sense. Yeah. Um, I think the thing she was hiding and namely I was confused about they were going to go explore the quantum realm at the end of the, the last movie and, and Avengers I, I believe the after credit scenes either in Ant-Man 2 which I think came out after Infinity War I think is, how it, is how yeah. it went down yeah. and they were going to explore the quantum realm and then and uh, Scott jumped in there and everyone else got snapped. Right. Why was she letting him go into there? But now in this movie, it's, we can't be involved with the quantum realm. Oh, there's too much danger down there. It just seems like something that they kind of didn't, like didn't plan ahead for. Maybe after she came back from the snap, she's like, oh, it's definitely not worth it now. It's, <laughs> it's, bad things have happened twice. <laughs> Stay and away. After the snap, all, more, all the more reason for her to be like, oh, look at all these world-threatening enemies we could face we should be yeah. worried about kang let me tell them about it instead of keeping the secret because what if he appears here and right yeah destroy, it, uh, her keeping the secrets didn't make sense to me either i'm glad that it didn't make sense to you <laughs> um, but basically they shrunk smaller than ever and this ant-man this summer <laughs> smaller than ever before right <laughs> that's perfect that was good that was good but they discover other living people beings there and Which was, I thought was really cool because we got to get really creative and like Star Wars esque, Rick and Morty esque, right. all these random creations. And no one knew that people lived down here uh, besides Janet, and that was one of the key secrets that she kept. And these people are now being kind of ruled or under the dictatorship of Kang the Conqueror. Yeah. Also, the movie was about her blaming herself for. And, and it's kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, but it's about her bl- Janet, Janet Van Dyne blaming herself for helping Kang in order for him to rise to prominence and now conquer and rule over all these people. When what she should be blaming herself for is going back to Earth, abandoning them and never telling anybody because her mission should have been to we gotta go help these let's people. save these people that I con- inadvertently contributed to yeah. their strife. She didn't even. She didn't even help him, you know, like she was just helping this guy that she met fix his ship. And then it turned out to be yeah. the worst guy in the universe. Which also, my question, another nitpick I have, we've been going over nitpicks since the theater. What did she think his name was? Because she, she like sees a vision when she touches his ship and she goes, who is Kang? What was she calling him that whole time? Jonathan Majors. Because <laughs> I, I thought I had missed something as an audience member. Did I? Did, did he give her a different name? Not that I know of. And it seems like they spent some time together. He was calling her Janet. Like, 
Was she just calling him "Hey, you" that whole time, assuming he didn't have any kind of moniker? Maybe we missed it, but I don't know. I I would have thought if I missed it, you would have got it though. So I don't know. No, I I don't remember. She, the whole time she was explaining this, she kept his name a secret, even in the story that she's telling. I did like how there was kind of this Darth Vader quality to Kang, where everybody Kang was, was really cool, afraid of, or Voldemort quality too, afraid to talk about him, afraid to speak his name, treating him as this larger than life villain. Yeah. Him, he, we can't, we can't face him. And then when they when they described him the first time, they said he's coming, and they said who. The Conqueror. Yeah. I was like, that was a great line. Like, that's a yeah. that's a great descriptor for him. It and sounds it was, menacing. It was cool for all the people to treat him like that, but it made it didn't really make any sense for Janet to do so. You know, especially if she's coming back to Earth and she has all these superhero friends. Yeah. You know that deal with these kind of threats all the time. I wish they had let us know because we don't really know what he put her through. We like, know there was a resistance fight she was involved in, but maybe she has a reason to be that afraid of him. But yeah, but that afraid that she doesn't even mention to Hank that there's people that live down there. He's researched yeah. this his whole life and didn't know that. They make it out to be like it's over guilt that she doesn't want them to know her involvement rather than fear of going back to face him. Which I think they should have built up like maybe a, a fear, sort of PTSD-induced fear to return to the quantum realm. And that's maybe why she would be afraid I to bring it up. I think they kind of went for that. I feel like they went for that in, Ant- in Ant-Man 2 more so in, yeah. than in Ant-Man 3 to... Is, is how I saw it. Uh, but either way, regardless of, of nitpicks, um, Kang was still very menacing and I think a great villain, one of the best villains we've had to date. I much preferred this iteration from Jonathan Majors than his iteration in Loki of He Who Remains, who I thought was kind of silly and not in a way that I enjoyed. You're kind of silly and I don't enjoy you either. Yeah, a lot of, some here people, we are, still hanging out with you. Some people Dang, have you don't right. have to criticize <laughs> all the time, all right? I'll never stop criticizing Loki <laughs> season one. Um, I thought Kang was the best part of the movie. I think uh, Jonathan Major's performance was the most uh, dynamic out of all the other performances. Um, and I thought his costume design was really cool. Uh, just his, like, power dynamic that he had, you know, just the power to, like, move things and uh, the force field and stuff that he did and the different lasers and stuff. That, it just was cool. I actually thought that... Um, I thought that Scott Lang, the performance by Paul Rudd, might have been my perform- favorite performance in the movie. Really? I thought that he did a really incredible job, and he has to toe, like, a difficult line because a lot of times they write him as very silly, bordering on you know moronic and i think that when there's moments where he has to be more serious and like a vengeful father or like a wronged you know he was you know uh coming back you know angry towards kang in those moments he has to sell that despite all being built up to be like kind of a joke in a lot of ways i feel like his performance maybe it's even just the character is kind of one-dimensional. You know what I mean? Like, for me, Kang, I saw him go through a lot more emotion. You know, um, he was he was stoic. He was angry. He was gentle when he was talking to just Janet when she didn't know his name. Um, I feel like I just saw a lot more from his character. Maybe that's just the way the character was written. Um, and maybe not so much on Paul Rudd's performance, but I feel like 
Paul Rudd as Ant-Man in this movie was just kind of one, well, one well, tone. If you way. look at if you look at the char- the developing arc for the characters, Kang has one goal the whole time, and it seems just to be to conquer. He wants to get vengeance on the Council of Kangs. He wants to conquer the timelines. Yeah. Paul Rudd has a developing arc in this story of this movie going from really not trusting his daughter to do anything to learning to to kind of loosen the grip in a, on the on the wheel in a way because having missed if you think about the psychology of the character missing 5 years was it of his daughter's life you're he's bound to still see her as this little girl and not see her as the woman she's grown into I think he's so, kind of missed more than 5 years too cuz he was in jail yeah he's missed a lot of time in his daughter's life maybe not all contiguous but he's he's having to juxtapose that in his mind the little girl he sees her at versus the woman she is now versus like I, allowing I, her that freedom i get the the arc that he's going on but i i just didn't feel that with him you know what i mean i feel like i felt it with him by the end of the movie him like coming back to to save cassie and then cassie's ultimately uh fighting alongside him you know rather than needing like, to be saved every time they hugged and stuff and it's like oh it's good to see you again i'm glad you're safe you you kicked butt back there like i felt like i thought to myself wow this is supposed to be like a really emotional part and i i don't feel it at all i hope general audiences are feeling it because i need that kick for my box office draft (laughs) i i was feeling it you were feeling it because you're attached to the movie well because i'm attached to that dynamic because i have (laughs) little nieces and nephews who i I feel a responsibility towards yeah and I have Alex too. Okay, and I'm <laughs> very proud of him and how far he's come in life, you know. But I don't know. I just didn't feel it that much. I didn't feel Alex is Aaron's cat. Much. If you haven't seen all the rest of the episodes, he makes some guest appearances. <laughs> My cat. You say it like he's beneath us. <laughs> he's not. He's not. Um, but yeah, by the I think that overall the best two scenes in the movie, and we've already talked about this. The best two scenes in Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania would be the interrogation sequence with uh, Kang trying to get information out of Scott by using Cassie, and then the Possibility Storm. Such awesome scenes. I think the Possibility Storm is a lot more unique and creative, but the the weight carried on Jonathan Major's shoulders in the interrogation scene really like makes up for any any lack of you know giant bombastic sequence in that scene it's just he's so like soft-spoken and in control and i've talked about this with other characters before but that way of just not needing to raise your voice to command a room he's very intimidating in that role yeah very darth vader-esque in that scene just yeah just the wave of a hand to put them up against the wall and right he can't move at all anymore you know and this is supposed to be an avenger yeah you know and this guy just moved his finger and he can't even move now. There's a small detail when they bring, when these these troopers of Kang's bring um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Janet Van Dyne, into his throne room, and his hand is resting down by the side. He kind of just waves it to the side, and the troopers just walk away and leave her there. And it's like the slightest flicker of his wrist has so much power over people. Obey him without a word, without question. It's like this whole army of people, and beyond that army, a whole civilization of people in the quantum realm who fear him. So it's just a lot of power. They did a good job displaying that to build him up for future movies, I think, is why this movie's like going to be a big 
uh, foundational block for this next phase. Definitely. What was the second scene that you thought was really good? Oh my god, the the scene. Oh, you said in the, the possibility storm. Yeah, it was so cool, so cool. I think that it's a scene that could have gone really cheesy route, and it could have been uh, like kind of weak for the movie. But the they mentioned the. Um, um, what's the cat's name? The Schrodinger? Schrodinger's cat? And that, do you know the concept of Schrodinger's cat? Mm. I'll explain it. So the paradox of Schrodinger's cat is that if you put a cat inside an enclosed box and you inject a chemical, uh, gaseous chemical into that, I believe it's like arsenic or something in the, in the thought experiment is what it really is, is that if the box is closed and you can't see the cat, is the cat alive or dead? It's basically describing it as the cat is both simultaneously alive and dead because there is a possibility that the cat is alive and the possibility that the cat is dead simultaneously both existing as possibilities, but you can't know the answer until you open the box. So that thought experiment is what they're displaying in the possibility storm. It's what they reference. Every chance that Ant-Man has to make a different move creates a different version of himself that made, that made the opposite choice until it's just this storm of different, uh, you know, multiple clones of himself making a giant world war z-esque mountain towards the little orb they're trying to collect the power power reactor for um for kang's throne chair whatever you call that thing but that seems really incredible he starts to be overwhelmed by the clones and then he hears cassie's voice in his ear which is again that emotional string being tugged at that works for me didn't work for you but it worked for me i really felt it um i just have a soft spot for that kind of stuff and she tells him not to give up and that she needs him. And that's when they all start working together towards one common goal. Because no matter what the different possibilities of himself are feeling, no matter what the anxieties are going on, some of them, they're running away. Some of them are turning large. Some of them are panicking. There is no possibility that any version of him would give up or ignore his daughter. And that's where I really felt it when they all started to work together, pulling him towards the top of the anthill. And... And then, like, they had that comedic uh, introduction of the Baskin Robbins uh, Scott Lang, which I thought was so funny. And he just, like, he, like, put so much effort into boosting him up from the foot, throwing him up to the top. Like, it it really worked. That's one area I felt like the comedy really, really hit for me was that joke. So that scene was just really epic. And it's the creativity of it, too, to acknowledge, like, the scientific concept of Schrodinger's cat and the infinite possibilities that we face in just this empty void of a backdrop, you know, with just blackness behind him. Um, I feel like was them acknowledging like the creativity of story over like pushing and pushing these special effects on us of like giant clouds and goopy aliens and craziness, which I, I don't always not enjoy, but I feel like that moment they focused solely on creative story and writing, which was very fun. And this is the spot that goes right into the size confusion of Kang walking in, right? Yeah, yeah. Which they seem like they were smaller, but Kang is not shrinking and growing, so so they must have at uh, least as far as we can yeah. tell. Um well, what about Kang? Do do we have any like background information on him? I have some, but I can get into that in our source code segment. Let's do it. Um, before I forget, I do want to thank our audience for watching or listening on whatever platform we're on. We really appreciate everybody who tunes into the show. It means a lot to us. And if you listen to our episode on Thursday, this Thursday coming out, we're going over Avatar Studios' upcoming projects, and we're doing a giveaway. Make sure to apply for that. You can, we'll go over it in the episode, but all you'll have to do, very easy barrier to entry, you just have to subscribe on YouTube and comment on that video when it comes out on Thursday. 
All right, Andrew, tell us a little bit more about Kang, the Wasp, Ant-Man, through our segment called Source Code. Okay, we'll start out with Kang because he's the real character that was being introduced to us in Quantumania. Um, the other characters have all been introduced in previous movies. So where did Kang the Conqueror come from? So in his original first appearance, he was actually in a Fantastic Four comic. Uh, he appeared with a different name under the name of Rama Tut. Uh, in that storyline, he is a, a time traveler who has gone back in time to the the ancient the times of ancient Egypt, and he went back with the goal of. So that who we saw in the uh, end credit scene. I imagine that's going to be the version of uh, another version of him that they're hearkening back to is like Ramatut, because he returns to that name in some instances too. Mm -hmm. he'll, he'll he originated as Ramatut when he appeared in uh, Fantastic Four issue number fourteen in nineteen sixty three. A long time ago. Back then, he uh, was originally created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and he was back in ancient Egypt in the name of capturing um, Apocalypse, the, the villain we see in X-Men Apocalypse, that all-powerful mutant. Um, he was going to capture him because he is also in that same time period, but the Fantastic Four in that issue catches up with him in ancient Egypt, and they end up defeating him. Um, but he later comes back in, in further issues, and he gains the name uh, that we know him by as Kang the Conqueror. Uh, but those are both monikers, right? So who is Kang the Conqueror? Who is Ramatut? His actual name is Nathaniel Richards. Nathaniel Richards, um, it's kind of murky from what I can tell, but he um, may be a descendant of... Uh, the father of Reed Richards, who is Mr. Fantastic in the Fantastic Four. He may be a descendant of Nathaniel Richards, Reed Richards' father, or he may also somehow be related to Dr. Doom, because there's a, a, a comic book panel where Dr. Doom meets Kang the Conqueror, uh, and they interact in a way of thinking that they are the same person at different periods of time. So Dr. Doom may be a future version uh, of Kane the Conqueror, who later travels back in time. He just hasn't caught up to him yet. Hmm. Um, so there's obviously some confusion of the nonlinear storytelling, you know, the timeline. In the movie, Kang says time is not a straight line. We see imagery of uh, him describing time and showing a circle. Um, I actually have a theory based uh, about that that I'm going to break out to in the middle of the source Ooh. code segment. Let me know what you think about this theory. Um, so when Kang says he was exiled there, um, I originally thought he was going to have been exiled to the quantum realm by the Avengers, but they, uh, ultimately it seems like we come to unveil that he was exiled by the Council of Kangs. So I think that when he eventually, this Kang most likely are, is going to be our main villain breaking out of the quantum realm. When he eventually does that, I believe he's going to be uh, sent back into the quantum realm at some point when they finally defeat him in the series, which since time works differently in the quantum realm, I think it's going to be basically setting him on a circular loop for his life. They send him back to the quantum realm, he fights to break out, and they send him back. So that's how I think they're going to close Kang into this loop. The damage by the end of the series, by the end of you know Kang Dynasty Avengers movie, whatever damage he's done won't be undone, but he'll never be able to move forward in time because they're going to trap him in that loop. That is my fan theory after watching this movie and seeing him display time as that circle. Interesting theory. You remember seeing him like hold that circle with mm -hmm. amongst the, the yeah, other time? Yeah, expanded, expanded it. it. Yep. Also, he said, don't let Ant-Man get near the rings, which further goes into everyone's theories that the rings in the quantum realm are related to the Ten Rings. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I guess what else would he call them? But I feel like it just seemed... In my head, I was like, rings. Don't ten, let him get, ten rings. Don't let him get, get close to the, to the loops. Don't let him get to the, the loops. Not the circles. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. But um, 
This is a character who I really did not know much about, um, but I thought it was really interesting to hear that he was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, obviously two of the greatest creators of comic book characters to ever exist. So many iconic characters have come from them. Speaking of, who created Ant-Man? So Ant-Man was created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Larry Leibert, um, which is really awesome. Like the, this, I believe MODOK was also created by Jack Kirby. So like these people's brains have given so much entertainment and created like a whole universe worth of life. Um, but Hank and Janet, Deva- Janet, so Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne debuted in uh, a seven page solo cover story titled the man in the anthill. So this actually only featured Hank Pym. That was a short story. That was not a superhero story. It was created by those three that I mentioned earlier. And it was so popular that Stan Lee said, let's turn him into a superhero, at least to hear Stan Lee describe it. That's how it went down. So, he took that short story, turned Hank Pym into the superhero Ant-Man, and the way that it originally worked was um, Hank created this, he, he discovered the Pym particle, which could you it could tap into um, the quantum realm and use energy from that to either, it could disperse your energy into the quantum realm to make you smaller, or gather energy from the quantum realm to make you larger. Um, so there's that instant connection, whereas I believe in the films, correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron, I don't remember the first Ant-Man that well, I believe it's like your basic um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids description of like decreasing the space between atoms to make people smaller. That's Sounds not, about right. I think that it's a little bit different because we didn't immediately have the quantum realm idea introduced. And when Hank Pym originally um, introduces the Pym particle, it's in the form of this liquid that he like will drop onto a chair in the comics and it shrinks or drop onto himself. Um, and he creates some, uses himself as the first experiment, which is obviously referenced in this movie where he uses the liquid form of the Pym particle to make that pizza larger and drips it on because normally they throw these little discs or it's in yeah. the suit um, but they referenced it with that with a pizza which was great do you think they great. can taste it? like do you think they, like they take a little a, sip? no they poured a little bit oh, on the pizza oh taste the flavor of the pim particle mmm pimmy <laughs> nice and pimmy <laughs> um, yeah hopefully it tastes good if that's the case but, um, it's probably he, like metallic or something yeah. Just, tastes like chemicals <laughs> just like Windex but he so eventually Hank is able to distill it into uh, a gaseous form that he then creates the suit for so that he has that mask around his face to, to control himself his size change at will um, and he originally when he actually finally appears as Ant-Man isn't until uh, issue 27 of Tales to Astonish in 1962 um, and he in, and then he, in later issues, he'll go on to uh, take his girlfriend slash lab assistant by the name of Janet Van Dyne, and, exper- and she volunteers for the experiment as well, and she becomes the Wasp, where he creates another suit for her as well. So Wasp actually appears alongside Hank Pym um, in issue 44 of that same storyline. Um, she... She... It, it's it's interesting. It's the same way that kind of happens in the movie of uh, her appearing in the Ant-Man story, right? So that's how we go from Ant-Man to Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, but the difference being that Janet Van Dyne is the Wasp in both the movies originally um, and the comics, but Hope Van Dyne in the comics is never portrayed as becoming the Wasp. That is solely for the cinematic universe of the MCU. Gotcha. Now, let's see... Make sure I'm not missing anything from here. Now, 
A big, big things to be aware of for Hank Pym's character is that in some occurrences, Hank and Janet are founding members of the Avengers. Um, Hank is also most known for, in the comics, actually creating Ultron, which obviously in the movies, he does not create Ultron. Tony and Bruce create Ultron. But that's kind of a big deal in the comics. Plus, a uh, big factor in the comics is continued use of the Pym particle kind of leads to Hank Pym having these mental breakdowns. Um, and eventually, uh, there's this famous famous instance of domestic abuse in comments where he hits Janet Van Dyne, punches her. Um, and it's one of the most referenced uh, examples of domestic violence in comic book literature. Uh, but this is kind of attributed in the comics to like, his. he's had multiple mental breakdowns, it seems like at this point in the storyline. Um, there's also physical effects from the continued use of the pin particle. Some characters um, use it so much that it actually begins to be naturally produced in their bodies. So uh, Hank Pym, Janet Van Dyne, and Cassie Lang actually can manipulate their size at will after enough use of the pin particle because their body is naturally producing it, which I thought was really interesting. I'd like to see them introduce that into the MCU at some point in time, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. It would make the power way more useful. Now, the last character to discuss, since we already mentioned Hope, does not really have a comic book background other than being the daughter of Janet Van Dyne, um, is Scott Lang. Scott Lang first appeared in Avengers 181 in 1979. Uh, he first appeared as Ant-Man in Marvel premiere in issue 47 of that same year. So uh, Scott is a thief who turns to a hero. He steals, just like in the movies, the suit from Hank Pym in the effort to save his daughter Cassie, who has a heart condition. Um, after that, Hank kind of gives him his blessing to become Ant-Man, recognizes his like virtuous goals, um, and moves on to like assist him in being in becoming a hero, taking up the mantle of Ant-Man. Um, so in the comics, uh, some notable things for the character of Ant-Man is that in the Avengers Disassembled storyline, um, I'm sorry, let me let me correct that. Um, Ant-Man dies in a, in a storyline, I believe that is titled Avengers Disassembled, along with some other Avengers, but is later revived. Um, and in comics, Cassie Lang also dies in a comic book where she sacrifices herself fighting Doctor Doom, and she is later revived as well, because you know how Marvel comics No works. one dies. No one stays dead in, in the comics. superhero comics. But I thought that was really interesting. Like, we're kind of diverging a lot from the, the background of Kang, at least. Um, and then they've kind of swept under the rug a lot of the dark past of Hank Pym in comic storylines, other than just making him kind of crotchety, and maybe he seems like he has some anger issues. Yeah. I would like to see a little bit more darkness in some of the characters, you know, to add a little bit more depth to the story. I feel like sometimes things are a little bit predictable in the way that things end up. Um, like this can kind of be a good segue into our backseat directing segment where we put ourselves in the director's seat and talk about what we would change, what we would keep the same and whatnot. So one, one of the notes that I have written down is that the movie didn't really make me feel any emotions kind of outside of the like predictable love is my motivation. You know, I, I felt like I was just, I enjoyed the movie, but I didn't, I didn't feel anything different. You know, they didn't make me really feel sad or angry or, you know, like I just kind of felt content the whole time. And I don't know how to necessarily throw that in without like changing the whole movie entirely. I feel like I don't have a big connection to these characters and maybe it's kind of just a theme with all of the Marvel movies right now where 
it's such a big cast that we don't get to spend a lot of time with one or two characters. We're spending time split up between five, six, seven characters. Uh, so we don't really get to see maybe some of the stuff that we would if we could just kind of focus in on one or two characters. Like, I want to go to a Marvel movie and feel something that I wasn't expecting to feel. You know, like, a good example is watching The Last of Us. You know, at no point did I think that I'd have a tear running down my cheek. You know, I didn't know that that story was going to be so emotional. And Episode three, man. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and I, th I feel like we're missing some of that emotion from Marvel right now. Uh, and especially in this movie, I feel like it was just kind of all one tone the whole way through. I think um, that maybe... I think what they're doing in a sense is noble, which was what I see it as is them trying to give everybody their time in the sun. Like if you look back at the the third act of Ant-Man, everybody gets to save the day. Cassie gets to save the day. She gets her big speech. Ant-Man gets to save the day. He turns giant and rushes in fighting the whole army by himself. Hope gets to save the day. She comes back and saves Ant-Man from Kang at the last minute. You know, uh, uh, Hank gets to save the day. He comes in with the Ant yeah. army and stops Kang and literally all of them, including Janet Van Dyne, save the day at one point. So it's so much giving everybody their time when I kind of agree with what you said that if maybe they removed Hank and Janet from the storyline and kind of let them be more of a cameo appearance, then we can have three main characters instead of five and focus on Cassie, Scott, and, uh, and Hope. Right, yeah. Like even in the Batman that came out last year, um, I feel like I felt more emotions watching that. You know, I felt his anger, I felt his grief, I felt his desire to make change, but not really knowing how to do so. And I kind of, I felt the growth that he went throughout the whole movie, but we spent like the majority of the movie with him. You know, we didn't have seven other characters that we were trying to follow at the same time. So I don't really have a way to change that in this movie specifically, besides downplaying some of the other roles you know maybe focusing on like what you said the three main or even ant-man and her his daughter cassie and yeah. just focusing more on them two the whole time i feel like it wasn't really an ant-man movie it was kind of a the ant-man game movie, <laughs> which is fine but i just didn't feel the the emotional connection and friends uh i enjoy when i watch movies uh, yeah, I, what, do, I, what do you have for your backseat directing? My main critique, and I think the only thing that I'll say for this movie uh, as of right now, is that I don't like the fact that watching the movie, it feels like the whole thing was filmed on a giant soundstage. And if you, if you don't know what I mean, if you look up behind the scenes videos for Avengers Endgame, the big fight is basically like they have some rocks and a blue screen behind them, blue tarp. And this movie was definitely filmed with just tarps everywhere. I would love to have seen just like an inkling of practical filmmaking, practical sets, practical wardrobe. It seemed like the characters that didn't have like a human-esque figure were just CGI blobs. Um, it's a huge thing right now for me with Marvel is monstrous characters they fight are just blobs. Like that son he fought was a blob. If you're remembering the if you remember the opening fight um, from Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, it's like this blob with a bunch of tendrils. Like, give me like a memorable monster. Like the there's like a dragon Thor fights in Thor Ragnarok, mm -hmm. and like I feel like 
that was an awesome looking dragon. Like, give me something that I can remember rather than just remembering an amorphous, something giant, tangible. gelatinous thing yeah. with some. It's got some tendrils that jump out at you. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I, w- I would love to see more practical effects done as well. They're definitely getting more and more further from where we started. You know, like we started on Earth, it was a lot more grounded the first few uh, phases of the MCU, and now we're kind of in this place where there's the multiverse, where there's the quantum realm and all this stuff. Like, this has been going on for 15 years. Like, you have to take it to the next step somehow. You know, like, how else are they gonna one-up themselves each time besides going to these worlds that we've never explored before. So I see why they're doing it, but it makes you kind of miss uh, how the MCU used to be. Yeah, I mean, when you, you... know, a little more grounded. When you watch Iron Man in 2008, and his suit is obviously not a real mechanized Iron Man suit, but you feel every click of his armor. When his face mask comes down, it's metal against metal. You you feel it. you feel the gears like grinding as you hear that that sound as his arms like rotating it's because he's surrounded by real tanks real people real guns a, a real legitimate backdrop behind him like maybe they sure they might have composed it but it's real looking and yeah. it, and it's it has that feeling of that it could be real even if it's a, is maybe a sound stage for some scenes but when ant-man is surrounded by giant clouds of quantum realm energy and it's the same thing with dr strange and i think that's why i don't enjoy the dr strange movies as much either is because it's very hard for me to be like oh like there's a sliver of like that could happen you know what i mean yeah and i i don't feel that with these two movies you know and and that's okay you know maybe these just aren't my style and that's that's okay i still enjoyed the movie it was still fun you know i had fun going to the theaters and watching it which is the whole point right um i have two other things that i want to say um i never felt like ant-man could really beat king you know like i just felt like basically anyway it was almost like dr strange again where like i felt like he would never beat scarlet witch you know and that kind of no matter what ending they come up with, I'm probably not going to be satisfied with it. And it was kind of the same thing with this. Uh, I didn't really feel like he stood a chance at all fighting Kang, especially when they were fighting just hand-to-hand combat. And yeah. and like, why wasn't he going small or anything there? I mean, I guess he got his he broke his destroyed, mask, yeah. but still... They, they brought up the... Uh, that would have been an awesome moment to debut the like, oh man, the pin particle is like being created within his own body now he can use it without the mask like that would have been like a leveling up moment for ant-man but i guess they leveled him up by making him grow bigger than he ever had before i i he was still the smallest he's ever been that's true even when he was big that's true relative to the other things in there but there was um there i think that that's a trouble with using the same heroes for the cinematic universes when they write a new villain at like Kang, they can he's new. You can make him as strong as you want. Right. But you can't necessarily break all the rules you've already set for yourself with Ant-Man. So he can't suddenly be strong enough to fight Kang. Like so the that whole time kinda... I was just thinking like, man, Ant-Man just has to hold on until the real Avengers get him. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say that Ant-Man's not powerful, but he I feel like he has a very like niche uh, usefulness, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Or advantage more so than usefulness you know what i mean like his fight with kang i mean the instance i think you're talking about 
at the very end, mm-hmm. Kang had none of his technology at that point, so it was right. just a fist fight. Right. But he was losing really bad. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I did really like the line where he said, uh, I don't need to win. We both just need to lose. But they also spoiled that line for us in the trailer. I didn't watch it. Yeah. So that was the first time I heard they it. spoiled their climactic line wow. in true Marvel fashion. Dang, I didn't even realize that. That's yeah. why I don't watch trailers. They're yeah. so dumb. And then one final like little critique, which I don't know. I hate it when they do this in these kind of movies is that they took his helmet off at every single instant possible. Like, I accept if, it with Ant-Man. That's probably got to be stuffy in there a little bit. Why, though? I don't accept it for Spider-Man. Why? Like, I feel like you're in danger. Like, you are in the quantum realm. You have no idea what could happen. Like, you're the most protected when you have that helmet on. And I'm sure it's, like, filtrating the air and stuff. And, and like, it's keeping you safe. Why do you keep taking it off in the middle of a fight? You know, like you take it off, talk to your daughter, you put it back on, throw a punch, take it off, talk to Hope, put it back on, do another, get big, get small, you know, like, yeah, they just have a- leave it on. Like, I'm, I'm here to watch Ant-Man. I'm not here to watch Paul Rudd the entire time. But a lot of people are there to pa- watch Paul Rudd. That's... But I still know he's there. Like, I don't need to see his face the entire time he's fighting. You gotta think about the, you know la- what I mean? think about the ladies. The ladies want to see Paul Rudd's face. They did this in Spider-Man Far From Home, too, where he would just, like, take off his mask all the time. That one's, like, he's protecting his identity. But this is just as important because he's trying to protect his face, you know, and they keep taking it off. And, like, I get it. The ladies want to see Paul Rudd's face. But, like, do they, though? Like, the whole time? The whole, like, during the action, too? It's more handsome than a tin can, man. Oh, man. (laughs) It's just annoying. You know, like, a a football player isn't going to take their helmet off in between every single play like i'm here i want to see ant-man you know i don't know with in this instance i don't care about like the full ant-man look as much as i care about the full spider-man look so i accept it because i want to see the emotion like i want to see the emotion wasn't even there (laughs) well like for jokes and stuff too i want to see paul rudd emote it makes it more entertaining and more funny yeah all right, anything else that you want to add to our review and kind of first thoughts of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? Um, this has potentially been my favorite Marvel movie out of like the past like three movies, like since, uh, since the release of Spider-Man Far From Home. That, that is my thought on the subject. So you like it more than... Multiverse of Madness, Wakanda Forever... And um, Thor: Love and Thunder. Thor: Love and Thunder. I think Thor: Love and Thunder is probably my top one. You know. <laughs> yeah. Anyone I who's been watching, give, uh, I can't give praise enough to that movie. Honestly, it's mostly because of the directing. Yes, definitely. Taika. Yeah, he and killed it. Like, wh- whoever thought to put a split in there, it's great. If I had one critique for it, it would be like it was a little too serious. Yes. Thank you. They, like, don't they need to loosen up a little lighten bit? Lighten up and, like, make a joke. Like, yeah. it doesn't really fit in with the formula for the MCU. It's, like, basically a drama. Right. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's too much. It's like, come on, guys. I don't want Thor directed by Scorsese. Like, put yeah. a little bit of brevity in there. Thank you. I'm, wow. I can't believe we finally agree <laughs> on, like, a movie opinion here. We never agree on this kind of thing. All right. Awesome. Well, end, the, end this episode on a good note, then. Yes, exactly. This is fantastic. Andrew, I wanted to say this earlier, but I kept forgetting, but... I love your shirt, man. Thank you. I mean, you have a great shirt on as well. <laughs> Thank you. It, it fits pretty nice. Yeah. I, I do like it. Um, if you're listening, we're wearing our first backseat directing shirts. 
Uh, and if you'd like to get your own shirt, just message us so we can keep tabs. Not, <laughs> we don't have any to sell right now. So uh, maybe in the future, if enough people want to wear our shirt, we can get some more. I'll be so excited when we can have merch one day. Yeah, that would be really cool. See other people wearing uh, our two faces yeah. on their chest. <laughs> but this has been an absolute blast. I, I Like I said, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed going to see it with you. Thank you for sitting down and talk with me about it. And thank you to anybody who stopped by to listen or watch the show. We really appreciate it. And that's a wrap. wrap.